This is Game Theory, our podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making. Hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, the end of tech. In the mid-1960s, one of the all-time great technology icons wrote that the end of tech development would come in the mid-2020s. He predicted that in the coming years, computing capability and the appetite for it would consistently double year over year until around this time. And then it would stop. His name was Gordon Moore, and he died recently at the age of 94. His law has been lauded as prophetic for those working in various fields of technology, such as video games, smartphones, and cloud storage. In this episode, we also talk about the reality TV show Love is Blind and our dating game episodes. We also discuss an idea for an upcoming episode about the American worker. And we talk about the future of technology advancement. And welcome to episode 65 of Game Theory, podcast about competition, strategy, decision-making, and today, in memoriam, Chris, but um, 65, I can't... So I, I want to come out of the gate and say last week I was sick, and that was not my best effort on the show, but it was my best effort in terms of that I was sick. You were sick? I was... You may not have heard that. I was sick. I, I have a hard time believing you were actually <laughs> sick. I mean, I didn't really hear it that often. Yeah, I never said it. Um, like I said, there are three kinds of sick, and I was above man flu. It was I'm drinking tea instead of coffee, which was bad. That's bad for me. That's like one level below. Like he's he might not make it. That's the highest. Possible. Oh, I'm proud of I'm proud of for persevering through the tea drinking. If you play three, if you listen to Nick's sister podcast, interesting to see. It, it's like it's been like every day. Yeah, really good content. We're in March Madness now. Golf is starting to start up. Some yep. shenanigans and April baseball. is the really time of sports stuff. in America. It is. It is. Yeah, it's it's the unsung hero of, of, of the sporting year. Notre Dame just won a fencing national championship. I don't know if you covered Their that. Their athletic director just got obliterated in the national media as well. Oh, yeah, because uh, people want to talk about Okay, here's the, here's the thing. <laughs> okay. People okay. do not have the courage to say, I want minor league football. But they're going to like say, I, I want to watch football played by people who are paid a lot of money to do that, but who don't really have to do things like go to class. Like, well, you just want professional football. Like you, you want you want them to wear your school colors and you want them to represent the history and tradition. No, you want minor league football occasionally. So it. no, that's not the issue. Like you're getting into the issue issue and what you, what you're, you're you're showing your true colors. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna help learn you something. My my, tr- my true colors. The problem is not the points that he's making. He made a couple good points in there. He made a couple points that seemed a little tone deaf, but he made a couple really good points in there. But the biggest issue was that it's clear that he's in his ivory tower because it doesn't matter what's in the content of the article. What matters is, is the headline retweetable to make you look like an idiot? And it was. So he needed to figure out a better headline than NIL is the problem. Like, no, literally anything else, you multimillionaire, would have been better. So it didn't matter what he thought. It doesn't matter his opinion. It matters, is the headline quote tweetable? And it fucking was. And so he got obliterated. Yeah, in the, in the <laughs> microsphere of Twitter, where people think things on Twitter are actually important, they're not. The most tone deaf thing in that tiny universe. The tone deaf thing was actually writing an op-ed in the New York Times as an athletic director. Actually, that might have been the thing. Yes, because your audience reads the New York Times for sure. All of Notre Dame's, all all of the people that are sitting at the games at Notre Dame, they're definitely reading the New York Times. They're reading the paper at the game. 
Yeah. <laughs> Did I tell you about the time? I'm going to tell you this this quick okay, story sure. about this time. I went, I got an Airbnb to watch a game as an alumnus like a year or so after I graduated. And I was super excited to go. It was against Michigan State. Really just hyped through the roof for this game. We got to the Airbnb, and the woman who was hosting us was so nice, but she was clearly one of these like old money, like my grandpappy's grandpappy was at Notre Dame, and they settled down in South Bend and got like a multi-gazillion dollar house. Right. Crazy, crazy nice. Very nice woman, had all kinds of like food and beverage for us, and it's a little bit like kind of creepy old vibes, but all told, very nice. But we were chatting before we went to the game, and she said... I just, I can't stand going to the games anymore. People are too rowdy and they get too excitable. It's just, mm. it's not the kind of enjoyable evening that I'm looking for anymore. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so this is, this is the problem right here in the flesh. This is why there's such boring snooze problem. fest. And then later that game, I got told to settle down on a defensive third down stand. I always got in a fight at a Notre Dame game once. I went to two or three, I went to three Notre Dame games with you. Two. I don't remember. Two or three. There was two. Manti Teo's senior day, and then that was awesome. it was awesome. And then also they lost to Louisville in a game that they really looked significantly worse. And I was going to fight with somebody yeah. from Louisville because I was like, I'm not sitting. You're, we are literally, I can see over the ledge at the top row. What do you, you, why did you drive here? Yeah, that's soft. That's absolutely soft. Speaking of so soft, I, Chris, I, I can't handle that kind of stuff anymore. So people are definitely reading the New York Times if they're in the Jack Swarbrick athletic director orbit. I mean, it's and it's Notre Dame, right? It's like Notre Dame and Duke right off at like that. Like, all right, like this is just a, this is just a fastball down the middle. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just so, I mean, it, it is funny. But speaking of soft, speaking of the soft people that go to Notre Dame games, I checkmated my wife this week, Chris. So the topic today, by the way, is going to be Moore's Law, which means that we have fundamentally are about to reach the peak of what is available on the internet. So that means that it's checkmate, essentially. That's what, that's why I'm making this transition. I checkmated my wife. So that's she has this smart-ass really response. She has a smart-ass response to people that ask her dumb questions. Her smart-ass response has been, let me Google that for you. Anytime someone asks her something, as in to say, like, <laughs> look it up. And so she said that to me, and I was my immediate response was, oh, that would be great. Thanks. And she was like, <laughs> what are you doing? Bluff. I was like, well, you offered. Incredible. Yeah, I, I called her bluff, and she had, she had no response. And now, of course, it's, it's one of my small wins, Chris. One of your very few small wins. They're I would they're add, they're, to, uh... they're infrequent. I so we 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 co- looking at the dating game, right? We've covered the dating game twice, and we're gonna do more online yeah. apps and stuff next time because the the geographic data are really interesting. And they've there have been some TikTokers who have run some anecdotal experiments about lying on the apps, and that has been incredibly effective. About just so you just lying as in like, oh, I'm actually six four. Literally, height over six one. Uh, hint at what you like. Pick a job that has a Googleable salary and matches go up by like six or seven hundred percent. Not bad. Is that is that just for men or is that one way? Just one guy did it in New York City, and he said all I did on like, like he picked different dating apps and he just changed different things on the different apps, and they yeah, it was like predictably like phys- like it was sign- and it was hundreds of more matches. Like not hundreds more, but like if you get ten here, he would get like seventy. So he's saying the Costanza method of doing the exact opposite, that actually does not work. No, lie is what the, this guy has found. But he was in New York oh, City. You should, so. you should lie. Yeah, just lie. Cause, lie cause, about Costanza yeah. was being honest. Yeah, no, no, don't do that. Not on the internet. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, you should so, never, ever be honest on the internet. You should never be sincere. You should never be forthcoming. No. Ever. Under any <laughs> circumstances. But we are watching season four of Love is Blind in my house, and I imagine that you... Are you caught up now? Yes. Yes, we're caught up. So I'm, I'm happy to talk... 
spoiler alert if you have not seen Love is Blind. You can skip about four. five minutes of this and then get to the Moore's Law stuff. Maybe I'll even put timestamps to make it easy for you. That's a good idea. That would be an innovation on this particular program. Uh, it seems hard. We'll see. Okay, spoiler alert. So here's the deal, Chris. First of all, there is a show uh, that was produced by Lifetime that was on Hulu for years, but now it's, you have to pay for it on Amazon, which it's totally worth it. Season one of a show called Unreal. And Unreal is a fictional show that is based on The Bachelor. Like, what if the, what's the producers like and what's behind the scenes of The Bachelor? It was so accurate that a lot of Hollywood, the producers and writers of Unreal, haven't really worked since. It's been, it was out for like four years, and people were like, yo, shush. It was bad about how they manipulate them. And now, as like someone who came from Medium came from media and like learned that kind of stuff. When I watch Love is Blind, all I can think about is like these people are, these producers are in their heads. So this Love is Blind is different than all the other ones in that there are more love triangles in this one I've noticed than ever before, which if they're pods, that means they have to be being manipulated a little bit because the, the well, odds are. I, I don't, I, I think there's, obviously there's manipulation at play. I mean, it's an entertainment product, but I, I think what we have in this case is a twofold dynamic that is driven primarily by the women. So the first is that, we have I, what I think is the first case of like women only not being into their match, their sure. fiance. Two of them. Three, and specifically, and the second factor is that there are two women who are significantly younger than everybody else on the show, significantly less mature than everybody else on the show. And it's going exactly like you, what you would think. They're, they're two people who have clearly never been told no in their lives or used to having like men wrapped around their fingers. They're not used to having to do work. And... They are just absolutely undercutting, sabotaging, blowing up their relationship, other people's relationships. It's fascinating to watch. I'm, of course, I'm talking about uh, Arena and uh, Micah. Micah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah they're they awful. Suck, man. So the thing that love the, the actual academic. I mean, you can't get data because everything's individual, and you can't you know do controlled studies and things like this. But the thing of Love Is Blind that I found really interesting actually is so far has been family values and specifically Christianity and Christian values. And I think that there has been a couple Muslims on the show. And I think that there has, there's been one woman who is very staunchly and openly Jewish. So we'll say Christian slash religious values. Um, so in Texas, which was season three, there were, they were younger and they were clearly immature, but they were kind of fighting their immaturity because most of those people were Christian, except for one person who was extremely Jewish, but they were very much like, I know, I see myself. I know what I want here. And as a result of that, they could kind of get away with like the younger people acted much older than they were compared to this season when there are two people in their 20s and they're very much in their 20s. But their religion has not been a big part of this season. And then in seasons two and three, in season two with one person and in season three with a few of them, religion was kind of a big deal. And I find that part of this kind of fascinating. Like the people that were outwardly religious were apologetic. They were, I mean, even when they were douchebags, they were like, there was a clear vision for how they wanted their life to be. And that to me has been fascinating because compared to this one, these people are all over the place except for the people who are in their thirties. And they're like, yep, I have fucked around and I'm good. And like, I'm, I'm ready to be in a committed relationship in, in that circumstance when people are ready to settle down. I think love is blind is an interesting concept. However, that would be a boring show. It would be an interesting like three or four episode show. But what I'm saying is with love is blind, they get like 40 people and the show ends up being about like, 12 of them, but there yeah, are like 80 people on the show. So that means there are a bunch of interactions that don't just go any places. So what I'm saying is like, it makes no sense to me mathematically that there would simply be organically multiple people who have interest in multiple people, because that really, there have been a couple times that's been the case, but in this season, like they all are in love triangles almost. 
in some way, which to me screams the show unreal. Like that, this, this season is the first one I've watched that feels a little like it's being fucked with. Like they're trying to create drama that in the first couple of years, they didn't really have to do that. It was just interesting. Well, the show is disproving its own premise also because one of the main yes. love triangles here is between two people that match up and a third person who does not like appear. She does not get a, another match. Yeah. And the person who is driving that is Arena. Mm-hmm. And it's because she is just physically repulsed by the guy that she ended up matching with. And I think their their matching was was probably motivated by like producers. You know, somebody had yep. to set that up yep. to make sure yep. that these couples at least get through. But she was just so turned off by this guy upon seeing him and upon yeah. physically interacting with him. Yeah. It's like, well, okay. I mean, I guess love got LASIK surgery or something because this is like, this is the exact opposite of what's supposed to happen in theory. And well, no, love is not blind at all. Love, love is, is very heavily dependent on physical attraction, depending on who you ask. Yeah. Or thumbs up or thumbs down, I think is the, the, the thing. I see because a lot of people in love is blind. You can see them. They look at each other like, not my type. Good yeah. enough, though. I'm good. That's good enough. Yep. Yeah, and that, that, that's part of this that's kind of interesting. So I, they, the way that Netflix is doing it is also interesting, which is instead of dumping an entire season the way they used to, I think they must have data on how many episodes people make it through in a weekend. So they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're giving people a week to catch up, which is brilliant. I remember during the pandemic, we were watching a show on Hulu where they did like an episode dump of four, and then they wanted to make it weekly. I watched first four and never went back. Like, I'm not doing yeah. that for you. And apparently, it was really good. It's called uh, Little Fires Everywhere with Reese Witherspoon. And first four oh. episodes were fire. It was awesome. That's a, that's on the kind of book that's, like, in, like, Reese's book club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, Nixon should, should be in that. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I have uh, no interest in that story. I've actually read it. It's okay, I yes. guess. Um, well, yeah, I mean, act, I mean, it's TV is always better if there's more money behind it. You know, they take their time yeah. and people that are good at it. Okay, so... One other thing we wanted to update before we get to Moore's Law and this, uh, the passing of this man, Moore, is that Silicon Valley Bank has been purchased, which... Yeah. Um, how do I... So in, for those of you college football fans out there, you'll know this. And to those of you that don't, I'll explain it to you. The University of Tennessee has a moniker. The last time they won a national championship was 1998. So anytime they win like four games in a row, they'll say it feels like 98, which is yeah, something that they September, say. Every September, it feels like 98. Yeah, feels like 98 every September. This year, it felt like 98 till November, which is exciting for them. Yeah. But um, but the rest of us make fun of them for it because it's like, oh, it's just a thing that Tennessee says. And I'm, I'm saying all that to say this. It feels like 08. It, feel, it does. It feels like 08. It feels like 08. And like Tennessee's excited when they say that. All of us are like, hey, want another global shit show? It's been about three years. It's time. Oh, it hasn't been that long. We're still coming out of one. Yeah, that's true. I mean, so it feels like 08. It's been 12 years. Yeah, good, good, good. So Silicon Valley Bank has been purchased by who? It was purchased by uh, First Citizens, okay. which is a bank that I think is known for doing that kind of thing. Like they yeah. buy up a lot of crappy old banks. And I, I mean, I guess somebody had to, somebody had to buy it up. The uh, depositors were all insured. They were all kind of bailed out. The shareholders were not, though. The shareholders no. lost all that money. Good. Uh, the bank itself actually lost all that money, and, of course, they were purchased. So uh, it's not an all's, all's well that ends well story for people who are doing really irresponsible things in, with a lot of money in the financial markets. Uh, but it's an all's uncertain, all's, all's well that ends with acquisition. I don't know. It's a, it's a really... <laughs> It's confusing. It feels kind of sudden. Man, you know, inflation is really bad, but like, are we really, is a banking crisis really inevitable at this moment? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It does feel like 08 in a lot of ways. It feels like 08. Well, it doesn't feel like 08. It feels like the summer of 08 slash the winter of 07 where everyone's like, ah, oh, that's probably fine. 
Yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's probably fine. Capitalism will fail. It'll never fail. We're way too rich for that. Hopefully, uh, I mean, I don't want to say hopefully we go to war, but that's what pulled us out of the depression. And that's sure not... as hell did not pull us out of the Great Recession. I'll tell no, you that it didn't. Right yeah, well, that war was, you know, speaking of that, RIP, 20 years in, in Iraq, that's uh, coming up on some fun anniversaries for the military this last past week. But okay. Yeah. Uh, we should, we're going to have to do a military episode. Everybody likes our military strategic episodes. We'll have to do another one. Maybe we'll do an Iraq anniversary one. But for now, we are going to pay homage to this man who had an observation based on the fact that he took eighth grade science and his observation turned out to blow everyone's minds. It got published. People were like, no way. And he made a prediction about something that would happen 2020 to 2025-ish. And it turns out that this is very much happening. So this is Gordon Moore, and he is the father of Moore's Law, which is something that he wrote in a paper in 1964. Well, and Moore's Law probably is not even the thing that he is best known for. Mm. Uh, he was a real, like, original track foundation, like, laying type of guy in the semiconductor industry and computing in general. He was the CEO of Intel, and he was the uh, founder of... Shoot, what was the other company that he founded? Something. I know. Let's Google it. Hold on. Let's control F this. I'm going to control. I'm going to F this. I'm going to control F it so I hard. Just, I, I, knew, I knew he founded. He was the CEO of Intel, and he was the founder of Intel. Founded Intel Foundation. This is Fairchild so, Semiconductor. Yep. Fairchild Semiconductor. So he, so it, the Moore's Law is an economic observation that, that he ended up making, but uh, he died uh, March 24th, as we record this. So it was just a couple yep. of days ago. At 94. And he was... Yeah, ripe old age of 94. So he had a, a, a remarkable life uh, in every sense of the world. He was a, a public figure. He has a huge philanthropic foundation that his family continues to carry on. Uh, and he founded Intel, the computer company, in 1968. And he was like a classic, you know, engineer putting his hands onto hardware and doing the tedious work of soldering and laying circuits and doing all the mathematics and verifying all the all, all the innovations that the company would eventually become famous for. And his his big like named thing, Moore's Law, that we've mentioned a couple of times, is a really interesting mathematical observation. It's like an economic uh, prediction. Yeah. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna quote directly from from Botanica here. Moore's Law, let's see, is a prediction made by American engineer Gordon Moore in 1965, so before he founded Intel, that the number of transistors per silicon chip doubles every year. The Wikipedia article has a little bit more information. So it's the observation yeah. that the number of transistors in an integrated cir circuit actually doubles every two years. So there was a, a, a period of time where Moore amended his law. Uh, but the idea is still the same. It's a projection that says after a certain period of time, the number of individual electronic pathways inside a circuit is going to increase by a predictable amount. And that's going to be a reflection of not just the... If improved efficiency with which we can physically manufacture integrated circuits, but it's also going to be a reflection of how important and influential computing technology is in modern society. And if you extrapolate out far enough, there you get to a, a physical limitation. We're actually kind of reaching sort of the beginnings of, of that period where Moore's Law, this, this mathematical graph shape that shows linear growth over a certain period of time, uh, we're actually getting to the end point of that where you cannot physically experience any more growth because you run into the limits of science. Yeah, and well, the limits of science and the limit, limits of matter. So the part of this that I, I want to make very clear is that he's not saying that computers can't get faster, it, like theoretically. Like they could get faster on paper for 
infinitely. What he's saying is that on a chip, on a, like your computer chip or like you just think about an SD card or whatever, the amount of shit on the little metal shit is going to run out of space. There is matter you can only get to the atomic level or whatever level that we are capable of manipulating. And that's kind of where we are. And he predicted this back in the 60s where he was like, we're, it's going to advance. And as it advances, we're, there's going to be more appetite for its advancement. There will be more uses. It'll be more widely accepted. Now, if, if everyone has noticed, I'm actually very nostalgic for something that I never experienced, which I'm sure is something, there's got to be a word for that. I'm nostalgic, that for something that I, I'm nostalgic for something I never experienced. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote about that really? in uh, an essay titled "The Weight of Glory." Yeah, he he said it was like, yeah, it's a, like a longing for a place you've never been. Yeah, yeah. So the thing I'm nostalgic for is going to college between '92 and '99. Like, where you're mm. like in a dorm when there's like a, a, a like a, a floor telephone and people wait in line and you have to order pizza and like you oh, go yeah. pay with cash. Well, and we you did. Walk we everywhere. did get a taste of that when we went to Key Camp. You remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. And like every time I did sports camp, like in North Dakota and places, it was it was kind of like that. But then cell phones come and computers come. I remember one of the hockey camps in North Dakota, I learned about Facebook in 2007 or 2008. At that point, everyone had to do in MySpace. But before that, like you couldn't, the very famous scene in social network, you couldn't like find out if a girl was single. You didn't, there was no way to talk to someone. You had to get a number. You had to like think we're going to meet here at this time. I'm very nostalgic for going to school. Like when Dre and Snoop Dogg were big, like that kind of Vince Vaughn, like Vince Vaughn would have been in college era that, that or around that time, the, like the height of Michael Jordan, I'm very nostalgic for that. I, I've, I've, I, I wonder about what that would have been like quite often. And I think since that time, Gen X and the millennial era, people born between 1970 and now, have just experienced this explosion that's been bananas. So it goes from your dorm and your telephone or whatever, then all of a sudden kids now, like they can Venmo people for money. Like my phone can transition money. I needed to have exact change to order a pizza on the dorm phone just however many years ago. And at, cer at a certain point though, What's been interesting is we've only been kind of tinkering with what's possible. We add apps, we add some demand here, we add some of this. But I, I remember Motorola, I had a Motorola phone and they, they invented a device that snatches on the back of the phone. Nobody liked it. But their point was that the, the smartphone hasn't really improved. It's gotten faster and the storage has gotten bigger, but the smartphone has essentially in no way improved. It's been the same thing for almost 20 years now. This is kind of Moore's law. Like there is a limitation to what you can do because there is not enough physical space on the chip and in the metal to improve it. Yeah, and, and Moore's Law, I think, is is the computer <laughs> and electronic circuitry specific example of something that we talked about before on the show. We had our episode recently on how innovation and disruption is becoming more and more incremental and less and less in like big chunks where like huge changes and upheavals in, in technology and social trends occur. And I, I think this is a really good encapsulation of that. And, it, and it's a good way to quantify it as well. I mean, you can take specific measurements of how many transistors are in circuits and, and you can, uh, like the electronic engineers of the world are really, really, uh, it, they're able to precisely quantify that. And it, it's a it's an easy figure to kind of be able to point to. But the larger trend, I think, is exactly what you said. I mean, there, there are, there's a ceiling against which you're kind of cramming up as you continue to improve and continue to innovate. And it's like that in a lot of ways. I mean, there's, there's only so much you can do to improve the efficiency with which, for example, you get food into your mouth. Yeah. You put something on a device, you put it into your mouth. You know, there are certain ways to innovate for that for like people who are physically unable to do so for, with, with, you know, with like a medical condition or, or whatever the case may be. But even in those cases, there's a limitation to what you're able to do. And Moore's Law, I think, is really interesting because... The prediction that in the 60s, 
people were saying, well, one day we'll be able to fit a huge number of these transistor transistors on this tiny little circuit. I mean, that was coming in a time that was like computers are like a room. It just huge database yeah. on like yep. physical film, and you have to run all these like really complicated switches. And, and coding was different. They had the, like a punch card system where you like you have a machine that physically like punches out little holes in a card, and you feed that card into a reader. That like that's what represents code. Uh, and you, know, so you can see some of the holdovers in that, depending on what computer language you're able to code in. But the predictions that that Moore and his contemporaries were making at the time in the '60s are representative of like, okay, human technology is going to improve an appreciable amount. It's yeah. going to improve in a predictable way because that's just how technology develops. And the end point is going to be when we butt up against the physical limitations of the world in which we live. Yep. And you've already said it. The thing that limits how much or how quickly the number of transistors on a device can improve is the size of the atom. And Moore himself said that the size of the atom is the, the barrier against which we're we're going to run up. I mean, you, you can't have an electronic circuit smaller than the physical components that comprise our universe because electrons are the things that are carrying signals from place to place. And it can only go from one atom to another atom inside a system. So you can't get any smaller than that. And it's really remarkable. I think that we're able to do that kind of thing, but it also makes a lot of sense because that's the predicted rate of technological advancement. And, uh, I, I think this is a really interesting example of like the limitations of innovation of space. Yeah. So um, there's a cat on my desk now, as you can see. She's getting a little. Yeah, older. I caught that. She might need a little help down. I don't so know why there's a cat Bella. on my desk now. Yeah, she, Isabella. Does she need help down or does she need attention? She needs help down because she didn't put herself there. Um, oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Oh. No, thank you. There she goes. Okay. Great. She's the real. There goes a the cat. We'll call her the pod cat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you get it? Yes. You, didn't, you so, didn't come up with that. No, I did. I came up with it years ago for my actual job because it's, it came on an interview and I was like, look, it's like podcast without an S. It's the same thing. They're the same. <laughs> they're the same life. Yeah. Very good. Incredible. Yes. So Moore's law and now people are changing it. I just, there's a Wall Street Journal editorial about Huang's law, I believe. And it's about the computing power of artificial intelligence is going to double every year. Look, this is not that's obviously derivative, but the idea that the atom is X size and we have discovered it. Forgive me, um, you nerd, but quarks are actually smaller than atoms, right? Yes. Well, okay. Brief detour. <laughs> I don't care that much. There, really quick. Really quick. There are a lot of subatomic particles at play here. Quarks comprise the protons and the neutrons that are at the core of the atomic nucleus. Mm -hmm. For reference, it, depending on which atom you're looking at, the atomic nucleus, if that was like the size of a pencil eraser, the, the size of the larger atom, the electron cloud that you'd be standing in, would be about the size of Yankee Stadium. Yeah, so like, and, and, and then there's and there, there space, are like some orders right? of magnitude that change, like yeah. depending on what, what atom you're looking at. Like a hydrogen atom would be like the size of the room that you're sitting in. But the larger metallic components that you're going to see in a circuit, like the, the electron cloud is huge, and then all of the mass is inside that tiny little pencil eraser. Yes, which is fascinating to me. This is happening. The podcast is Put back. Put the headphones on the cat. I see. Put the headphones on the cat. I see that the wife wants attention. Yeah, I, I caught that. Yeah, there she goes sneaking away. Is I'm she, putting that on YouTube. She must be later. done Googling stuff for you. Uh, <laughs> okay, so quick, quick, quick side. Chris, did you see this? This is the book from our friend Justin. 
Yes, I did see that. Solving the prices right. It's only that thick for those of you that don't want to dedicate uh, months of your life, which is me. So I'm excited for that. It seems like this is good. I'm sure that half of like a third of it is my favorite thing about reading nonfiction is that you can count on a third of it being references and things, which is always something that you can. Oh, well, that's good. It's only it's 80 less pages than I thought it was going to be. Well, and Justin has done a spectacular job of breaking down the information in a way that's easily digestible, which is to say in a lot of graphs and charts. He's presented yeah. the data exceptionally well, and I think that really supports his arguments about game theory that he's yep. making you know, based on the prices, right? Super, super interesting read. We're, we're really excited about the book. What's really interesting uh, to me is that... Huge thanks to Justin. For he, so Justin kind of... Or Justin... Uh, Jeopardy James, James Holzhauer, solved Jeopardy by just understanding probability and then also being good, but understanding probability. This book will help you solve the price is right. If you read this book and just shut up and do what this book says, there's a chance you could become Price is Right James. There's, there is I mean, a chance you could do that. Yeah. Go uh, uh, say hi to Drew Carey, bring home a vacation trip to Cancun or Cape Cod or wherever they go. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. But yeah, all over the world. More importantly, I think you can get her a better appreciation for how to make good less biased decisions in your own life to maximize your payout. And you just, like it, it's a good way to understand all of the factors that play into like systems of people who are presented with data and have to make a decision based on that data and a payout that they're trying to achieve. Yeah. Really, really uh, good book. Yeah, no, it's, and it's a brilliant idea. It'd be a great Instagram account because of all of the uh, charts and, and graphs, which I am, of course, thankful for. Okay, getting back to Moore's Law and Huang's Law, I think that from the liberal arts point of view, the thing that has, like I've mentioned many times about this show is that people are sentimental. There is a willingness to just be happy instead of just doing the logical thing at all times. And you, there's, a, there's a humanity a aspect of participating in game theory. Moore's Law to me kind of points out the humanity and the applications of, of improvement. So as I mentioned, right, like objectively being able to touch my phone and order a pizza is better than standing in line behind a girl calling her boyfriend from home in the dorm, right? That yes. you're not going to get your pizza. But at a certain point, you, you get freaked out by what technology can do. And then there's, a, there's limitations. So if Facebook starts in 2004 to 2000, I'm going to call it 2006, 2007, when the average folk could get on it and it stopped being for university only. Okay. That's kind of when it became a thing. Since then, it felt like for about seven to 10 years, every couple of years, there was another thing that people really liked. And then there was like, what felt like an eight-year gap between maybe Snapchat and TikTok. And it kind of hinted at, we're, there's not a lot of ideas out there that are actually good anymore. And TikTok is just a much better algorithm. It's just videos, but the algorithm is what the innovation is of TikTok. But the point that I'm, that I'm trying to make is that we're kind of bumping up on what we would want. And before the show, I, I kind of mentioned to you, in the 60s, you stare at the sky like, man, it would be great if I could, instead of only being able to fly from from New York to Chicago, I'd really like to be able to fly to Akron. And so we've solved that. We've solved ordering pizza on your phone. There's, there's no space race that really matters. It's like, oh, well, we're going to go to Mars and we're going to document the human body. When we wanted to fly from New York to Akron, we all wanted that. The entire society was on board with, let's improve flight. Let's improve medicine. Let's all do it. And there were arguments and stuff. But right now, everyone, there seems to be an attitude of, especially in the United States, of like anger. But when you break that down, it's just because we're kind of bored. There's nothing left to collectively want. Maybe we want peace yeah. on earth and the advancement of ideals, but there's nothing, there's nowhere to go with this now, it seems. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no question that the advancements brought about by technological innovation, by better social planning, I would say, and that's not to say like top-down government management, but more thoughtful, more mindful, more socially conscious allocation of goods and resources, uh, a more uh, person-first oriented approach to 
innovations and technological improvements. I think there's no question that the average person today in a well-to-do country like in the Western world or even in China or, or in, in, you know, in Russia, depending on where you live in certain parts of Africa and in Australia, like the average person lives today so much better than like the wealthiest people in the world would have lived a thousand years ago. Oh yeah. Incomprehensibly better. And the things that have contributed to that are largely industrial improvements. I mean, the ability to mass produce things efficiently, the ability to uh, predictably and reproducibly create goods on a cheaper scale to produce more food for people to access, to produce medicine, the discovery of penicillin yeah. It was a huge, huge advancement in the field. And that fundamentally changed things. But like we've talked about before, I mean, if you're trying to improve, say, traffic flow from one city to another city to develop economic engagement right. and increase trade and make life better for everybody, you build a bridge. But you can't just build a second bridge to make it even further and expect the same level of growth. Right. You can't discover penicillin again. It's already there. The smartphone is as close to optimized as you're going to get it. Now it's a matter of like user preferences as opposed to, I mean, the the pitch 20 years ago would have been, man, wouldn't it be great to have a handheld device that weighs no more than a little notepad where you can access the entire sum of human knowledge at your fingertips with just, you touch a piece of plastic in a few places. You can have a ride to a location you want. You can have food brought to you. You can pay bills. You can check in with your doctor. You can do all kinds of stuff. Man, wouldn't that be awesome if you had that device? Yep. Well, now... We do have that device. So I heard it's someone ubiquitous in the in the developed world, and th- there's no reason, th- like there's no real like major. Hurdle. There's, no there's no need hurdles. for a shit. There's no, yeah. no more barriers to overcome with this kind of device. And so now it's about, well, you know, the frame rate of this phone is a lot better improved, so I can watch my TikToks without without having the motion smoothing effect. On yeah. So I I will tell you the 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 the, the thing that makes me the most angry at myself is when I get just irate with technology not working at a high level because I understand logically like, dude, two years ago, what are we talking? I will never forget as a person. So I lived with division one female college athletes and I'm under, I'm aware of the bias and, and the, the double standard that exists among high level athletes for men and for women. And then just the difficulties of that. I will never forget having the, the meta moment standing in a parking lot, waiting for a ride at old miss in 2013, watching my roommate play soccer against the University of Louisville on ESPN, the app. And I thought to myself, there's fucking women's sports in my hand right now. This is mind-blowing. I'm watching women's sports in my hand. Like, you could, like, five years ago, women's college soccer being on television was a joke. It was for Team USA only. And now it's, on, it's in my hand. Yeah, it's and anybody crazy. in the world could watch it. Yeah, they, the, the, the other thing that, like, the user doesn't necessarily, might not necessarily think about this all the time, but smartphones have also made it easier for companies and people who are trying to, like, sell you stuff to get you to pay for it. Yeah. I mean, now it's just a matter of, like, inputting credit card information yeah. or signing up for a subscription to a service, and then you can get women's soccer in your hand. You yep. can get pizza to your door. On your, you can get your, like, monthly subscription services for, I don't know, this month's knitting yarn of the month. I just downloaded hot. Fable, which is a book club app, and I don't know if it's pay. I have I I open it every now and then when I'm reading, and I'm like, okay, and I, I almost joined a book club, but I've not gotten to the point where I can tell if it's free or not. I suspect it's not, but if I haven't got there yet, but I did do that. I was like, oh, look at online wait, book hold club. Up. Hold, hold on, hold on. You can't tell if it's free. I what I say when I can't tell if it's free is I haven't gotten that far. Every so time I open the app, I don't you get far enough. Sta- are you are you checking your statements regularly? 
Bro, you're you're you are way overshooting this. This is what I'm telling you is I open the app and I fuck around for instead of five minutes, thirty seconds, and I haven't gotten to the point where I can tell if it's got a paywall or not. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, so it's you, much you're more saying, laziness saying, than it is like yeah, the idea that I would forget to enter my credit card information, but having to enter a credit card, Google saving and Apple saving your tokens for credit cards is why I've lost all this money because having to enter the card information has turned me around so many times. I'm like, ugh, that seems like it's not that I wouldn't pay it; it's that I don't want to do this right now. Yeah, me- memorizing my my debit card number was probably the worst thing I could have done that. for myself in Never. like college. Like Never, uh, yeah, same. Do you know how many times I got drunk and I woke up and there was Jimmy John's at like 11 a.m. that had been there from the night before? Because <laughs> they just memorized my number. Shocking. <sighs> but the other thing that makes me angry is like when, so I use, I am the person that does the producing and the recording for this show. I have expensive Thank programs. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, and I've got monitors and this whole setup. And I, I use the shit out of, the t- I get every inch out of what my computer can do. The only people that get more out of the computer are probably gamers and high-level programmers and hackers. I get a lot out of what I, like when I buy it, I want specs and I know what they're doing and I, I burn them down. So anytime it's a little slow or maybe I've downloaded too many things, I get like work, you piece of shit. And I have to remind myself 10 years ago, you would not have had a computer that could download the program that you're getting mad at and you're trying to run five of them simultaneously right now. So just shut up maybe and relax and just enjoy this. But from a large scale standpoint, me included, maybe this is why everyone's so angry is that our expectations are so high because we've gotten used to so, everything being so easy. We are now at a point now as humans where we are not trying to achieve improvement or trying to achieve happiness. And it turns out Thomas Jefferson was right to say the pursuit of happiness. It's really hard to not be mad all the time at the shit that I'm just so gifted to have. Yeah, I mean, look, look there's, there's a lot to be said for the the danger factor of living in an affluent society where mm-hmm. by and large the populace has known peace. I mean, we, we were at war with Af- in Afghanistan for 20 years, right? We withdrew from Afghanistan last summer and it, it was an embarrassing defeat. We're the latest in a long line of empires who trudged into the graveyard that is of Afghanistan. We were at war in Iraq for nearly two decades as well based on really crappy premises that turned out to be completely wrong. It was uh, it was not a time, though, that America was at war. Uh, I, somebody that I, I worked with not too long ago on a project said, oh, yeah, no, uh, we went to war. He was, he, he, was in, he was in the U.S. Army. So we went to war. America went to the mall. In, in, in the post-Cold War world order where like, yeah. there's no longer a big bad, we don't have the specter of nuclear war hanging over our heads in, in as significant a way. We don't have a major war to fight. I mean, there's operations in Kosovo and Grenada and whatever. But, I mean, to the average American, they don't even know where those places are. They don't even care. So the, to think that we're a nation at war would, would have been grossly wrong. I mean, we've, we've had peace for, for 20 years. And then 9-11 was a huge shock because it was in the middle of this, like, Pax Americana where everybody was just kind of, like, going to the mall and shopping. And, like, the dot-com bubble had just happened. And, like, life was just really, really good. Yeah. And so living in a society that's peaceful prosperous there there aren't really like the big struggles against massive world powers anymore like the greatest generation had to fight there weren't huge society-wide problems that we could band together to collectively solve you know the, yeah there, there was the for like six weeks to get everybody on six the same weeks page. was great in 2020 we had a six-week thing where we were on board all of us well six weeks. yeah the, pretty good. the working class who were yeah. not politically aligned to somebody who to whose image they, they were, were scared shitless for about six weeks and then they got mad because mm-hmm. the people had to make content on tv but six weeks there there was a there was a bliss and i never forget telling my wife and my friends hey we're gonna miss this 
Like Yo. it sounds weird to say now, all this death and suffering. We're gonna miss this time for the people that that are fortunate enough to either work from home or even if you got laid off and all you're doing is watching Netflix, who gave their shit away for free. Every, we, this but, is we'll never come together like this again. I really, but, but I kind of believe. But even that. so, I mean, the, the the point I'm trying to make is that in a society where we're all affluent, yeah. that generates boredom and yeah. the desire to be a hero. And like have some kind of cause, some kind of righteous fury against, like some other against which to rail, and like it, it just it, it's so powerful. Like the the forces of resentment and the need to be a hero should never ever be overestimated. And when we there's nothing to be heroic about, when there's no big other to try to fight, people will invent causes. People will invent yeah. things in a vacuum and boredom. And so. The alternatives are largely like acting out in really antisocial ways, like shooting people in public. Yep. Or, happened um, as we record this. There's another one today. A girl, I believe, last I heard, a girl brought guns to school and shot and killed, I believe, three teachers or staff. We'll say staff and three students. Her co her co students, I believe, that she was an underage girl and she had multiple weapons. And I that that's we we should not spread information about that because I don't, I don't think that's accurate. I thought, yeah, that was the last update that I heard. I, I mean, no, latest latest uh, report I heard was that, uh, <laughs> yeah, this was. Yeah, not, let's look it up. Uh, we have the internet. We're on, this is a podcast, and it's gonna be postdoc anyway. Let's look it up. Yeah, we're talking about how we got the internet. Let's use the internet right now. Yeah, where's where's the wife to look this up? Not yeah, here. Why, yeah, Kim, Google it. A shooter fatally shot three students and three adults at a private Christian school in Nashville. Um, the shooter was killed, I believe. I definitely yeah, remember that. 28 year old Nashville resident. You're right. You're right. This 28 year old woman with two assault type rifles and a handgun. A so, woman. Yep. So the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that when there's no, when there are no problems, people will create them. And when they can't create problems, like they act out in really, really antisocial ways. And so like how this relates to Moore's law, it, it's a question of like how much better life can be. I mean, the assumption that life is going to be better with, this or that technology or like after this or that, uh, I don't know, food production technique or information management system gets better and ubiquitous and accessible. I mean, life is going to get better, but it also comes at a cost. I mean, once you butt up against that glass ceiling where you can't make those big improvements anymore, people don't really have anywhere to go. And so if you fail to find fulfillment in things like loving your family, taking care of your children, making your community better. Yeah. If you, if you can't find fulfillment in those things, it's a recipe for disaster because you can't also turn to like exploring the latest undiscovered frontier because they've all pretty much been discovered. Yeah, that, and that, it's, it's kind of, it makes you feel almost helpless. Like there's no big wondery to come, like there are no big explorations. I think I studied medieval history quite a bit in college. And I think that if I had found the history of ideas like medieval and Renaissance history, I think I might've done that academically. I thought about that, but I found it too late and I didn't want to stay in school for three more years. And uh, yeah, no, I, don't, I just don't, if you've listened to the show, I do not have the attitude of a kiss-ass academic. I don't have the discipline of that either. So that would have been a failed <laughs> career path. Uh, I, would, I would say that is the, the strongest factor at play. Yeah, I couldn't have done it, but I did. I was sitting in lectures and reading books and I have a bunch of books and I've, I've attempted to write some papers in the past. I've gotten pretty close a couple of times uh, to being like engaged for some, for, for some actual scholarship. But in medieval history, there are a lot of factors in the Renaissance history that seem very similar to what we're doing now. We're like, we're in a kind of fall of nations moment where not that countries are going to fall or collapse, but that we are all in little kingdoms and feet. Well, yeah, I mean, countries come and go all the time, but we're in like these little kingdoms and fiefdoms of like political thought, uh, brand 
loyalty. There's a lot of like tribalism and, and it's stronger. Like Elon Musk is trying to build the town. So it's stronger than just this person or that person. Like Elon Musk is, is much closer to a medieval king than he is to an American entrepreneur. Like he's got like a godlike status. People are loyal to the king. Like that and they, they're all a bunch of other kings and they have commerce and they hate each other and they backstab each other. That's very similar to what was happening then. And in that period of history, the reason that there was so much skirmishing is that no one could conquer all of it and that the people were, were bored. Life, te- life became very tedious in, in medieval history. So there were, you know, myth of myths like dragons and magic and alchemy and all that kind of thing that, that stems from that era of history. But mostly my hypothesis has always been it's because they're just soul crushingly bored that they created that, that these things are how to get through your life because it was one church or one organization just telling you what to do. And there was no, like life was meaningless on a day in and day out basis. So for people to get something out of it, family and kind of simplicity was something that they, they could turn to, but we seem to be kind of like we've solved, like life is better than it was in medieval Germany right now or whatever, but it's also like what, what's going to be different. I will say this to finish my rant. Um, podcasts are something that I find really inspiring as someone who's got, uh, visual challenges. That's, that's a different thing I can learn through audio medium, but the word we're doing this right now, which is fun. Yeah, and everybody crazy. that likes podcasts, like to hang out with us. And like, we like, I like to hang out with my podcast. Like I, I do news ones too, but a lot of the podcasts I listen to, I just listen to hang out with the people. They're my friends. Like I work from home. Yeah, it's awesome. We're, we're going to talk about this in a future episode, but uh, a recent study just came out about social capital. And, and Player 3, if you've been with us for a while, you know I'm, I'm big on... Uh, I, I'm really interested in social capital ideas, especially with uh, the book Bowling Alone. I've yeah. talked about it a bunch of times before, and the, the basic thesis is that American social capital is lower than ever, and people are less connected, and blah, blah, blah. And you were right, Nick, in that there was a small window of time during 2020 when everybody collectively shit their pants yourself yours truly included yeah and like okay we are kind of all in this together um and then it became a political spectacle and a badge of identity to determine whether you're going to like try to solve the problem or try to like uncover a conspiracy or not and so that quickly broke down but the the data that just came out of the wall street journal i think today uh, they did a poll that was asking like what's what's the most important thing to you what's the thing that motivates you the most and everything from patriotism to, uh, I, I don't know, spending time with friends, so being involved in your community, all of those things just absolutely plummeted. Right. And it's really especially depressing, I think, the, the community involvement data point. And, of course, we'll, we'll get into this more uh, in a future episode when we actually focus on it. But community involvement was, like, at a peak in 2019. It's like, yeah, this is really important to me to get involved in the community. And now, after having been forced to go indoors and sever those connections, whether you liked it or not, now it's just emerging that, like, it's not really that important to people anymore. The only thing in this set of questions that the Wall Street Journal asked respondents that got a positive increase relative to 1998 was money. People want more money. Yeah, like that's like a much bigger part of their life, I think, which is kind of strange. I think with money comes status. I do think that there are a lot of sociological things happening. I think, well, TikTok, I mean, this is an aside, an aside, a side quest, side quest. I think that. TikTok in particular's algorithm is so amazing and it really is. I, I believe it's it's worthy of like Nobel Prize for mathematics kind of shit. It has completely changed the world in a huge way. Now, what the app is able to do from a data collection standpoint is also amazing as you think about it as an accomplishment and not as a weapon. It is insane what they can do. It is, the app is profound. It is a profound accomplishment in computing. But 
because of that, I think historically speaking, the next batch of historians a hundred years from now will have, they won't be liberal arts people. They'll be data scientists. So they'll have all the answers. They'll know exactly what everybody was doing at every given moment. And all I have to do is probably buy the data and they can just look into this huge spreadsheets full of different stuff. And I think right now what we're going to see is I, I, I suspect the money thing is going to hit a, a critical mass soon. And that similar to the way I'm nostalgic for going to college in an era when I was seven years old, I think that people are going to be kind of away from that. We're already seeing that with millennials. I, I, I read a Wall Street, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. I don't know which fucking bank is paying them to write all this. Get to the office. What's going on with the American worker? Like, guys, man, whoa, the articles are bad. We should do, we should do an episode on uh, remote work and the, the, the millennial worker and where we just roast Wall Street Journal, Business Insider, New York Times articles. Yeah, we, we, we have done similar things before. Yeah. We'll continue to do it for as long as these these things come out. I, I do think, so quick personal side. So you're nostalgic for having gone to college in in this period have, in the 90s. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, yeah, okay, yeah. totally get that. Uh, I'm nostalgic for the 90s as well, but like in work culture. So like the, the early episodes of The Office when it was like, oh yeah. They're like office the, space. Office space specifically, and you know it's it's the whole the whole aesthetic the whole vibe. I really like excess and things that are really unnecessary. So like the preponderance of Hummers and SUVs during that period. Mm-hmm. Really a big fan of not being environmentally conscious. So that's an appeal to me. <laughs> but this like this like office work culture where like people go into a building and they sit at a computer and they push buttons all day and blah blah blah. And that was kind of like it wasn't like a brand new thing, but it was sort of a, a, a novel sector. Like okay, that's the thing that's driving the American economy for for the most part. I mean, people developing computer technology and doing financial work inside of like an office building. I, I, I think it's an interesting time. So I get the nostalgia for that. But I, I can't help but wonder if that is going to kind of come back in force where there, or there, if there will be like, not necessarily for like the aesthetic or the vibes of going back into the office, or like being a corporate drone. I don't know if that'll ever come back into fashion. But I do wonder if, like, the grind set mentality that was prevalent through a lot of, like, yeah. the early 2010s, like, rise and grind, man. You got to be hustling, blah, blah, blah. I think there's a lot of backlash to that right now. A lot of, like, people doing more to demand more pay, doing more to establish boundaries, doing more to say, no, I'm not going to go above and beyond at work just because my boss wants me to do so. Yeah. Uh, specifically, when the structure of, like, not just like the business itself, but the larger economy is in some ways kind of dependent on people doing extra work, like things that are not part of their job description, closing up and opening businesses before they are able to like clock in people taking on additional responsibility just to keep the office functioning when like they don't have the personnel who normally would cover those responsibilities. I think that's a significant, significant part of general office culture and general professional life in America now. And I can't help but wonder if there will come a period when, I don't know, inflation cools off or employment security stops coming under the microscope, like in the tech sector. If, if when a little more stability gets added back into the mix and we're able to have a little bit more predictable future, I wonder if there'll be a time when people go back to saying like, you know what? Yeah, actually I do want to grind. Actually, I am interested in staying more at the office, putting in more hours, and, and and it won't be because, oh, I think this is going to get me ahead. I think this is going to get me a raise. I wonder if it'll just be because people want to do work for the sake of doing work, yeah. and it'll be like a kind of a proto-1990s yeah. you know, hustle type of culture, and I, I, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if I would recommend that for anybody, but, yeah. you know, there's, I kind of think there's some... Philosophically, like, the way to tie this back into Moore's Law is like, is there a philosophical limit 
to productivity. So I saw along these same lines, Goldman Sachs, and we'll talk, we're going to do an American worker episode now that I think like, we're pitching it. Like we're just pitched a show live. We're going to get into this. Right. For more, for Morris law, you can see like, it's going to get predictable and predictable every, like it's going to get you know greater and greater and smaller and smaller every year until one day it's just going to hit critical mass. Uh, the theory right now is that COVID kind of pointed out to people this, but it was getting close to critical mass. These Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs had to hire something like 6,000 employees to do the work that had previously been done by the work staff because the staff was like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to work 90 hours a week. I'm just not, because you would have to work 90 hours a week. And if you didn't get burnt out, then you would be elevated. And then people below you as a system did that get to Moore's law where they were like, I'm full. I don't give a shit about your bottom line. I think, I think that the internet has empowered the worker just like it's empowered everything else. We're like, and if you can guarantee that not only will I be paid more or I'll have more say, and that say will be accounted in, in writing, I'm simply not going to do more shit for you. And everybody said that all at the same time. And now people are like, well, what's happening? Like, well, we don't care if you make money, bro. That's not my problem. If I like my job, I'll go above and beyond. But just to do the thing, I think, um, and it's, it, it's the exact same thing as Morals Law. And I, I, I loved Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, for multiple reasons. One of which was the idea of memes and that ideas have their genetic, essentially. This idea that if, if matter is finite and it goes this place, it comes out here. And if energy is finite, then perhaps like willpower or, or thought is finite. Maybe ideas are finite. And at a certain point, you can't both be happy and successful. You have to choose here and there. Like their time is, is, is finite. Yeah, and at the, at the very least, I think that might be true in a metaphorical sense. I don't, yeah. I don't know if I would go so far as to say like, I, I'm not, I'm I not agree. smart enough on the physics to say that whether that's like true in the universal sense or not. But I think metaphorically, I mean, it's hard to just, it, it's just hard to do it all. It's hard yeah. to have everything you want. And I, I think uh, you know, Everything Everywhere All at Once was the title of the Oscar winning movie yeah, that yeah, captured yeah. like, it, there was like chaos and like the hectic exploration of the multiverse and so many like competing interests and different versions of yourself. And people are asking those type of questions right now in this kind of hectic, uncertain, chaotic time. And I, I think that's really emblematic of a, of a general attitude of like stepping back and questioning what do we, what do we actually want here? And I think the, the, the thing about Moore's law that is the most interesting and fascinating to me is that the results of that correct prediction about the rate of, of this like specific technology becoming predictably better and more efficient over time. That is what has enabled society to have this kind of questioning moment right now. If yeah. the pandemic had happened in the 1990s, we would not nearly have had the capability to respond as well as we did because yeah, so no much question. less of the economy would have been physically capable of doing remote work. I mean, the ability to like, can you imagine in 1992 instead of 2022 sitting at your home computer dialed in, a small camera pointed at you and at your coworkers and everybody's able to just like efficiently work and go into yeah. different work rooms. Like, I don't even know if the software existed for that. I mean, like video calls were a thing, but it was like highly specialized stuff that like, it's not in the average American household. TVs were barely in the average American household. Well, okay. That's an exaggeration in the nineties, but, but you get my point. Yeah, no, the I get your point. Like, if the, before email, they had to send memos. Like, we're going to mail you some memos yeah. from the day before. Or think about this. I understand Publish everything that in triplicate and st stick it in as many mailboxes as you can so you can make <laughs> sure people can read them. Like it's, it's crazy how much of the, the, the fact that we have an information-based economy in the West. We are so, so fortunate and so spoiled that we were able to respond to a pandemic in a way that basically just involved staying away from everybody, watching a lot of trash TV, 
ordering food brought to us by the working class and <laughs> yeah, yeah. like and being able to you know kind of be resilient in our own way of, of doing nothing it's it's fascinating to me that this technological prediction is essentially what enabled us to to come through the pandemic and and it's why we find ourselves in this moment of question what do we really want what is actually important to us well, Chris, one thing that's been improving on smartphones that maybe I am incorrect about is that the cameras are getting better. And for those of you on TikTok watching this hellscape of every other video being a Taylor Swift concert, the cameras are <laughs> fucking good. They are zooming in from the back and you're like, bro, it's this amazing. actually and is even amazing. Like, even like a couple of years ago, people were like, yeah. dude, stop taking videos of concerts. Nobody's going to watch that. It's like, well, shit, now I might watch it because Taylor Swift is awesome and this camera is incredible. I can't believe it. And it doesn't have the shake video. anymore. So like this is actually like documentary quality shit. It's amazing. It amazing is amazing what we've been able to do with these improvements. Ah, oh, I agree, but I don't want to see Taylor Swift all summer. I got like two more months left of this. I wish you could mute videos on TikTok. Like you can mute words on Twitter and I hope nobody mutes us. Nick, <sighs> send us out now, but I want to give a shout out to not just Gordon Moore, but... Uh, mm. Another predecessor, technologically speaking, that enabled us to get where we are with TikTok and everything else. Shout out to Vine. R.I.P. Yeah, God. The, and the that's original a, quick hitter video content. Vine is such a studyable thing because like, they were right. They were just early. They really they were. were. The early is worse than being wrong. It really is because then you just... Six seconds forever, baby. That uh, and then uh, can you imagine? Because didn't Twitter buy them? Because like, oh, we love that thing where there's not enough time to make a video or the 140 characters. That's a disaster. 140 characters. What a savage world we used to live in. 140 characters. I, I yeah, I literally cannot believe that that happened. You can follow us on Twitter. On that note, I would follow us on YouTube. Yes. You can watch this episode. We have a new logo, Chris. Uh, you we haven't do. seen it yet. So, what do you think of the new logo that you haven't seen? I think it is exactly what one would expect for the second or third iteration of the Game Theory logo. It's not very complimentary. You want to try that again? I'm really proud of you, Nick. Thank you so much. It took a long time. <laughs> <laughs>